But I also want to ask you, ask God this week to bring vacation Bible school in your mind. If you can't be here, I know lots of people have to work, and then you can't be here. And lots of people are going to be here, obviously. But ask God to put that on the forefront of your mind this week, to pray for our vacation Bible school and to pray for all these children that are going to be here this week. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we, we come to you today and we thank you for being here to be able to worship you and, and sing praise songs to you. Father, we praise you because of who you are. Father, we praise you because you're going to give us a wonderful opportunity this week just to present the gospel, to present Jesus Christ to so many children that are going to be here. And Father, I thank you for all these workers that are giving of themselves this week, and I pray your blessings on them. And I pray for the different areas that they'll be working in. Some of them are behind the scenes, and some of them will be more prominent, but Father, you know that that all that counts, it counts the same to you. We pray for all the little hearts that are going to be here this week. Father, we just pray that they're open to the gospel. Pray that they're open to whatever it is that you want them to learn and whatever you want them, whatever it is that you want to teach them. Make them receptive to the word. We just pray that everything we do this week will go on. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a young man walked into a drugstore to buy three boxes of chocolate. He bought a small box, he bought a medium box, and he bought a larger box of chocolates. When he was checking out, the pharmacist was kind of curious, and he asked him why the three different boxes of chocolates in three different sizes. And so the young man told him, he says, well, I have a new girlfriend, and I am going to her house tonight, and we're going to have supper, and then we're going out on a date. And when we go out on the date, if she lets me just hold her hand, then I'm going to give her just a small box of chocolates. But if I get to kiss her on the cheek, then I'll give her the medium box of chocolates. And then he smiled real big and told the pharmacy, says, but if I get to smooch seriously with her, she gets the large box of chocolates. So he paid for the chocolates and he left. So that night he gets to his new girlfriend's house and when it came to time to say the blessing over the meal, he asked if he could pray. And they said, sure. And he began to pray. And he prays this earnest, intense, long prayer. I mean, it took like over five minutes. And he finally gets done, and his new girlfriend turns over to him and said, I didn't know you were such a religious person. And he said, well, I didn't know your dad was a pharmacist. <laughs> it's a good thing to pray, whatever the circumstances. And according to many public opinion polls in America, Americans, Americans believe in prayer. A Gallup poll tells us that 90% of Americans believe in prayer, which is interesting because in the same poll, 
only 86% of them believe in God. So that's an interesting statistic. 83% say they favor prayer at graduation exercises. And 70% of all Americans believe that there should be prayer in public schools. So Americans believe in prayer. And that's kind of been our summer topic in the month of June here. We have been talking about prayer. And in week one, we kind of talked about God's attitude toward prayer and how, like we do our children, he wants the best for us. And then last week, we started looking at the Lord's Prayer. Because it's an interesting fact, so to speak, that the 12 disciples, these 12 Jewish guys that had prayed all of their life, when they start hanging out with Jesus, they realize that Jesus prays differently than they do. Like there's an intensity, a ferocity to Jesus' prayers that, that's different from these prayers that they've learned since they were like two years old in the synagogues. So in Luke chapter 11, they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And it's the only place in the New Testament where someone teaches someone else how to pray. And so Jesus begins to teach these guys how to pray. And we looked at the very first part of, of Matthew chapter 6, some of the passage that Joseph just read a minute ago. And it talks about the importance of having a time and a place when you're praying. Because if you don't, then your prayers just kind of become reactionary to whatever is going on that day. You know, Lord, help me with the test I've got to take. God, I don't know what to do with my boss who's in a bad mood today. Help me find my car keys. And we're just praying prayers that are reactionary to whatever's going on that particular day. But Jesus says, when you pray, have a time and a place because then you can really think about it. You can acknowledge who I am. And we kind of got into the Lord's Prayer itself and the first two verses. And we said, one of the purposes of prayer that Jesus teaches is you do it to declare God's greatness. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We are acknowledging how great God is. And so that's where we kind of arrived at last week. Today we're going to look a little bit further. And the second part of the Lord's Prayer is this. If the first part is we acknowledge and declare God's greatness, today we're going to look at the part that deals with it. It's really two parts. It deals with us recognizing our dependence on God, that we are dependent on Him. And when we are dependent on Him, we're also acknowledging the first point, His greatness. So that's where we're going to kind of go today. We're going to look at the, next, or the rest of the Lord's Prayer and how it acknowledges that we are dependent on Him. So let's start with verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. I wonder, in this room of hundreds this morning, has anyone ever prayed that part of the prayer and meant it? When was the last time you were just hoping to get enough food to get through the day? You know, when Renee and I worked at that camp, there were some times when cash flows would be kind of tight and five or six weeks in a row, we wouldn't get paid eventually and get made up to us. And the pantries would get kind of bare. But I was never worried about starving. I mean, never, not even close. 
Have you ever had to pray that? Like for real? God, give us this day our daily bread. In fact, I bet most of us would be mad if we had to pray, give us this day our daily bread because we had no idea what we were going to eat tomorrow. We would probably be angry with God. Listen to this Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 30. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown me. And say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Do you know what he's praying here? He is saying, he is praying, God, don't make me rich. God, whatever you do, don't make me rich. How many of you have ever prayed that prayer? One, okay, I admire his honesty. Because most of us, I don't think, have ever prayed that prayer, God, don't make us rich. Probably most of us have never asked God not to make us poor either. But that's what he prays here. He says, don't make me rich, God. And then he also says, at the same time, don't make me so poor that I won't have anything to eat. Don't make me so poor that I'll have to steal and then I'll dishonor your name. So don't make me rich. So, so what are we praying for then when we pray the Lord's Prayer and we say, give us this day our daily bread and most of us have bread. Most of us are going to have food this afternoon. This word bread here is kind of a broad term. It actually is talking about all the physical necessities of life. It's talking about food. It's talking about shelter. It's talking about money to buy the things that you need. It's talking about clothing. It's talking about the air that we breathe. It's talking about all the necessities of life. And when we pray this, we are praying, God, I recognize you are the source of the necessities of life that I have. I mean, most of us, like I said, we're not praying, I don't have anything to eat today. I mean, there are restaurants all over the place within five, six miles of here. We've got all kinds of super-duper grocery stores. Just about every gas station you go into has food. I mean, we have all kinds of bread, don't we? We have white bread, wheat bread, whole wheat bread, Hawaiian bread, and rich bread, so on and so forth. I mean, a lot of us are thinking, I really don't need to eat so much bread, right? But we're acknowledging God when we pray. And I think we're also, or I hope your heart is doing this also, you're grateful. Because it's not just that we have bread. Think of all the choices in food that we have. Think of the wonderful way that God has created food and the, the myriad of choices and tastes that we have. We could have made everything taste bland. Everything can taste like spinach or broccoli. Or God could have made everything taste like mud. Or it all can taste the same. I think about my poor dog sometimes. Basically, my dog gets the same dog food all the time. Same brand, same kind, just the same. And I kind of feel sorry for him, but not enough to spend more money on dog food. <laughs> but what if our food was 
like that. Just the same old stuff, but it's not. We have all these wonderful tastes. We have all these wonderful fruits, all these wonderful vegetables that all have their own unique flavor, flavors. We have all these spices that add interest to our food. Pepper and salt and garlic and oregano and all those kinds of things. And we have sweets, pies and cakes and ice cream and donuts. Just all these things that kind of enrich our lives, so to speak. I was walking through the living room one day, and my wife loves to watch the cooking shows, and she's an excellent cook. And I just happened to catch a little bit of this lady saying that if you add cayenne pepper, she was making some kind of chocolate cream, that if you would add cayenne pepper to this chocolate cream, it would accentuate the taste of the chocolate. I just thought, well, how can you add basically cayenne pepper and it makes it taste more chocolatey? didn't make sense to me. So I asked Renee, I said, is that true? She goes, yeah, it's true. But God has just blessed us with all these wonderful types of food. And so I hope when, when you're praying, God, give us this daily bread, you're acknowledging that. That all the good that God does for you. And think about this. The United States and Canada, we make up 6% of the world's population. But we have 59% of the world's wealth. And if you have food in your fridge and clothes on your back and shelter over your head, you are richer than 75% of the people in this world. And then if you have extravagant items that most of the world considers extravagant, like cars and air conditioning and hot water and indoor plumbing and cell phones and computers, that's extravagant to most of the world. 500 million people at any given point are starving to death. So when we're saying, God, give us our daily bread, we're saying, God, thank you for the way you bless me. We're saying, God, everything I have comes from you, and you are good to me, and I continue to trust you. You know, sometimes we live in a, a self-sufficient society, don't we? Well, I work for my money, and I work hard. And I do this, and I pull myself up by the bootstraps, and I pay my own bills. I'm my own person. I make my own way. That attitude is kind of being addressed in this verse, that everything comes from him. I want you to notice something else in that verse, too, though. The word today, or maybe your translation says this day. In the simplest terms, it means I am trusting God day by day to meet my needs. It means I have to trust like a child. You know when a child gets on their bicycle and rides their bicycle, they're not worried about where that bicycle come, came from or if it's going to get a flat tire. When they run around in the grass, they're not concerned with who's going to mow the grass. When they sit down at supper, they're not wondering whether or not there's a drought in the Midwest. They're not worried about whether or not somebody, a farmer, is planting seeds somewhere. They're not thinking about all that. They are trusting their parents. Ever taken a, a toddler to a swimming pool, a two- or three-year-old, and you can get them on the edge of that pool there and tell them to jump? Now, some of them won't jump, but about 90% of them will just jump into your arms and laugh and smile. They are totally trusting you because they sink to the bottom real quick. They're not worried about that. They are totally trusting 
Scripture say that's the way we should trust God. Trust Him like a child does. Just day to day, not worrying about things. When we pray this prayer, it's not like we're putting money in a, in a vending machine expecting God to do something for us. When we pray this prayer, we're not like a lawyer trying to persuade God that he needs to, to do something for us. We're not like a student asking a teacher and begging for a better grade. No, we're just simply trusting him. We're showing our dependence on him. Now you might say, well, you know, sometimes it doesn't seem like he gives us our daily bread or or at least he doesn't give us everything we want, right? I think God does that because maybe sometimes we ask for too much or God knows what we need and we don't need certain things that we ask for. Maybe we ask for strawberry shortcake and God said, just the strawberries. Or maybe we ask to win the lottery and God said, mm, you don't need to win the lottery. I know you. If you won the lottery, you would soon forget about me and you'd be dependent on that money and you'd have no room in your life for me. So I think God is like a wise father. And he knows what we need, need. And sometimes he just said, that's not what you need. So let's move along. Verse 12. It says, forgive us our debts, or your translation may say trespasses, as we have forgiven our debtors. You know all these verses? This is the one that kind of scares me. You know what? Because in the same sentence, God is kind of linking, or he's kind of suggesting, or he's putting together anyway. I'm forgiving you, and that means you need to forgive other people. That means I'm forgiving you, and I'm not holding grudges against you, and I'm not holding anger against you, and I expect you to do likewise. So when we're praying that, that's what we're saying. God, I'm not... You're forgiving me, and I'm going to forgive the people that have wronged me also. And there's two directions of forgiveness here. One is our forgiveness of, of man toward God, or God's forgiveness of us man toward God. And then the other is our forgiveness to our fellow man. And just, let's just kind of look at these for just a second. The key to the first one, our relationship with God, is the word, the confess part of it. Confess means to acknowledge that we've done something wrong, to, to agree with, that we agree with God that we have committed wrong. And there's kind of two words here that, that are really important. One is the word debt, and it means moral and spiritual debts to God. It means we have wronged God either spiritually or morally. And there are a number of different words in the New Testament for the word sin or the word debt. This particular word is only used as a noun twice, here and in Romans chapter 4. The rest of the time, it is used as a verb. And when it's used as a noun like it is here, it means that it carries a sense of consequence with it. In other words, when we wrong God, there's a consequence to doing that. Let me give you this example. Last week I had Sean come up here and, and we were talking about that special relationship that a father and a, and a son have, or a father and his children have, that, that you, your children is different. They're the only ones that can call you father. They're the only ones that, that can call you daddy. They, they have privileges that other children will never have. And I talked about, what if Sean wanted to borrow a car and 
You know, he could ask me to borrow his car, but he couldn't ask other dads in his church to borrow their car. That would, I mean, that just wouldn't be right. But he could ask his dad because he has that, that privilege. Well, let's take that illustration a little bit further this morning. Let's say Sean does ask to borrow the car. And in a rare moment, I agree to let him borrow the car. But he borrows the car. And then let's say the next morning I go to get in the car and there's burger wrappers all over the floor. And there's been like a soft drink spilled on the center console and it's just all sticky. And there's mud all over the car. And at that point, there's going to be a little bit of rift in our relationship, isn't there? I'm not going to be real thrilled. And, and, and our relationship is not going to be the same for a little while. The fact it's not going to be the same until he asks for forgiveness and corrects the problem. There'll be a break between him and me, his, his dad. So when we ask God to forgive us when we've messed up, we are mending that relationship back. The other key word here is forgive. This is really kind of cool. The word forgive means to wipe away. It means to dismiss. It means to send away. It was a common practice by the Romans. Whenever somebody was being crucified, they put a, a, a piece of board over their head and it would list the offenses that they had committed while they were being crucified. And so this word means that that, that board is wiped clean. It's, it's dismissed. It's sent away. So when God forgives us, he dismisses it, he wipes it, he sends it away. Isn't that great? Doesn't the whole grudge is against us? Which brings me to the, to the second part of that. He tells us that we're to forgive those who have wronged us. Bud Welch's daughter, Julie, was killed in the Oklahoma City federal bombing. When he heard of Timothy McVeigh's arrest, he felt only rage and a desire for vengeance. McVeigh's lack of repentance, repentance only made his anger hotter. He said, I just wanted him fried. Bud's hate took him on a journey of sleepless nights and drinking vengeance. It also led him to go visit the bombing site. When he visited the bombing site, he made a vow to himself to change. And he said, I remember watching Bill McVeigh, the father of Timothy McVeigh, on television. And he said, I saw the same pain and grief in Bill McVeigh's eyes that I had. He arranged to meet Bill McVeigh. They sat together and they talked about their children, one who was dead and one who soon would be. Forgiveness and mercy overwhelmed Bud Welch. And he said, I never felt closer to God than I did at that moment. When he was asked later about those who resented his forgiveness of Timothy McVeigh, he said this, they think they'll get some kind of healing by the killing, but there's nothing about killing him that's going to Revenge never solves anything. That's what God is saying here. So we need to forgive those who have wronged us just like he forgives us when we wrong him. Third thing I want you to notice. Lead us not into temptation. 
So the preceding verse has kind of been talking about past sin. Now it's going to talk about future sin. And this verse, in a nutshell, kind of shows God's protection. And it, it first sounds kind of simple. Lord, keep us out of trouble. But there's some people that kind of struggle with this because they go, well, if we're asking God not to lead us into temptation, does that mean that if I don't pray that, that God will lead me into sin? That God will cause me to sin? Because that seems to be anti-scripture everywhere else. God can't, and it is, God can't cause people to sin. And we think about this word temptation, I think that might be what throws us off a little bit here, because the word temptation means to test or try. And in the English, anytime we hear that test or try, it almost always kind of has a negative connotation to it. But here it means to solicit to evil, and God can't solicit to evil. And so this word bring or lead, just because of the grammar and all that kind of stuff, and I won't go into all that, the idea is do not allow us to be led into temptation. And it implies that temptation is a process. And it means when we pray this prayer, don't let us be led into temptation, we're acknowledging that Satan is always trying to get us to do the wrong thing. And we are acknowledging that, God, I need your help to keep Satan from leading me the wrong way. Not that God's going to lead us the wrong way, but I need your help so that Satan doesn't lead me the wrong way. A.T. Robertson is a, a, a Greek New Testament scholar. He says, it's the idea of a sentry who rushes to his commander when he spots the enemy rather than trying to fight by himself. You know, Memorial Day weekend, there were a lot of documentaries about different wars and things like that, and also some movies. And uh, I recorded a movie called The Bulge. I think I had seen it before, but basically I think it was made in 1962 or 1967. And just to kind of give you a little historical background of what that movie was about, in 1944, the Allies had kind of taken control over Europe. And D-Day was a success, and we were, we were moving well, and uh, Hitler was beginning to get desperate and take drastic measures to try to save his regime. And he felt like if he could somehow counterattack and, and drive the Allies back to the sea, he could sign an armistice and, and, and save Germany. So on December 8th, they launched this massive attack. Eight armored divisions, 13 infantry divisions, all kinds of tanks and rockets and howitzers, the whole, the whole bit. And they launched it on an American group there in the five divisions of American soldiers there in the Ardennes Mountains. It was known as the Battle of the Bulge. It was the longest land battle of the war, ended in January, on January 28th. Largest land battle of World War II. Over 100,000 Germans were killed, wounded, or captured. Americans suffered 81,000 casualties. Over 19,000 men were killed. But just imagine this. It's 5.30 in the morning on December 8th. You are a sentry. Standing guard. You're out away from everybody else. You think the Germans are in full retreat. And all of a sudden, it just breaks loose. You hear the launch of howitzers, one after the other. 
They start exploding all around you. Trees are splintering. You hear the rumble of tapes. You see rockets flashing across the sky. What are you going to do? You're going to stand there and try to hold off all those divisions of German soldiers? No, your job as a sentry is to get word back to your commanding officer of what is going on. It's not your job to stay there and try to fight them off. That's the picture that we're talking about here. Satan is working and Satan is doing everything he can and we acknowledge that. We're the sentry and say, God, I need your help to hold off to fight against Satan. Deliver me from the evil one. And then it just kind of ends. You notice that in your scripture? It just ends. Deliver us from the evil one. Now a lot of us we remember that there was a doxology, and you heard Eddie sing it a while ago, and uh, there, there was a doxology there, and it just didn't end. You know, it depends on what version of the Bible you look at. If you're looking at the NIV, it just kind of ends with deliver us from the evil one. But many of us remember that there was another part to it. For mine is the kingdom and the glory and the, po the power and the glory forever. Amen. And the reason it's not in your NIV and some of your other translations like it is the King James is because all the older translations don't include the, the, the original manuscripts, Greek translations and those kind of things. It seems like it was something that was added in later. But certainly it has meaning and certainly it, 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 it kind of makes it kind of end a little better. It's kind of awkward. I, uh, when Renee and I got married... A lot of people were singing that song that Eddie sang at their weddings. I mean, lots of people. It was kind of a, a great way to end a wedding, you know. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. I know Eddie does it better than I do. But, I mean, that was a good way to end a wedding. Versus, and deliver us from the evil one, you may kiss your bride. You know, that didn't quite work as well. But it closes with this doxology that again causes us to recognize that, that, that God is, is great. And the word amen is kind of an interesting word too. As a, as a Jewish term, you know, in our setting, we hear the word amen and it's kind of degenerated into this, okay, I can hold my eyes up or look my head up or, oh, it's time to go, amen. Well, that's not what it meant back then. When you prayed that and then you said amen at the end when the Jewish people said that, it meant so be it. So in other words, what I have just said, so be it. It was like they were making a vow, an assent to what they had just said. It wasn't just some random words that said it was time to go. It's kind of like in a way. Use that wedding illustration. When I got married to Renee and the minister stood up there and he looked at me and he said, do you, Dennis, take Renee to be your wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death <coughs> doeth part? And I say I do. That wasn't the end, right? It was the beginning of my commitment. That's what that means, that word amen means. When I say amen, it means I am committed to what I have just said. It's not the end. Oh, these are my requests. I'm done with them. It means I am committing to everything 
that I have just prayed. So let's kind of wrap it up. Last week I kind of challenged you to, to maybe practice, and I've been trying to do that more myself this week, practice what I preach so, so to speak. In your prayer life, I challenge you to put more emphasis on the first part of acknowledging the greatness of God. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Those sorts of things. And you know, I think for a lot of us, that's not the easiest thing to do because it's not how we were taught. You know, we're, we're very into, you know, the, the, the God, I need this, and God, I need that. And that's kind of the way we think about prayer a lot of times. And it's a little bit harder to, to spend some time acknowledging who God is and praising God and those kind of things. And I kind of challenge you to do that. I've been working on that, too. But there's one other thing that I think is kind of tough for us to do that's, that's in that first part of that prayer. Your will be done. That means we ask God, whatever you want, God, I'll do it. I think that's tough for a lot of us. I think when you're younger, it's easier. I mean, when I was young and I was in college, yeah, God, you can have everything. You, you can have everything. You can have all my eight tracks. You can have all my bad clothes. You can have that 1971 Ford Pinot that I'm driving. I think God's like, well, aren't you generous? <laughs> God, I'll go anywhere you want me to go. You're in college. You don't even have any plans. Where are you going? But when you get older, I think it's different. You get married and you have kids and 401ks and houses and all those kind of things. It's a little harder to say, God, whatever you want, I'll do. But yet, that's what God wants us to say. That's what he wants us to do. God didn't have anything but... Not my kids. Not my kids. I just can't go there. God, I, I'll give you everything, but but not that guy. You know, sooner or later, he's going to get saved. He's going to get in church, and I'll be okay, and I won't be unequally yoked. God, not my money. You don't understand. And I, I grew up differently. I grew up poor. Money's my security. I just feel different about money than most people do. God, don't, don't ask me to give that up. Pastor, I know you talk about percentage giving and tithing and generosity and those kind of things, but, but I can't give the, that kind of stuff up. And we just kind of hold on to it. Can I tell you a little secret? If you think that you can hold something back from God, then your God is about that big. Because God can take it anytime he wants. But most of the time he doesn't. You know why? Because of his goodness, his mercy. He doesn't want our stuff. God doesn't want whatever you hold on to. He wants your heart. He wants a relationship with you. Not the stuff. He wants you to fully surrender now, what would happen this afternoon or this week if you got away in your closet or your room and said, God, I just, I just give it all to you. I just, I just, I want to give it all to you. I realize that's kind of scary. And I realize that for a lot of people, it's probably pretty easy for us to say, God, I'll give you, I can give you these eight things, these eight out of ten. But these other two, God, I, I, I'm just struggling with it. You know, I think God respects that when you're honest with Him. 
And you say, God, I, I can give you eight out of ten, and I'm still working on these other two. Because he wants all of us. But when you at least acknowledge, God, I'm still working on this, I'm working toward all of it. And then at least you're not just saying a rote prayer anymore that you don't even mean. Because so many people pray anyway. Sure will, God, whatever you want, but we're not really praying that. I think God would honor that. And then you are pursuing a relationship. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done.